Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. Before we get started today with our interview, I wanted to talk about two upcoming events. One at Solar Power International in Salt Lake City. Our whole team at Clean Capital is going to be on the ground there. So if you want to connect to talk about the podcast, to talk about solar systems you want to sell, you can reach us at cleancapital.com. And we look forward to uh, meeting up in person. And also, October 29th to 30th in New York City, Clean Capital is proud to be hosting a live recording of experts only at the Solar and Storage Finance Conference. This October, you can uh, get to our website, cleancapital.com, to get information about getting a discount code to be part of that summit. It should be a really fascinating conversation about accelerating uh, a decentralized and intelligent and sustainable market. So I hope you can join us. So let's talk about today's guests, uh, the amazing Melanie Nakagawa. Uh, Melanie is currently with Princeville Climate, but I know Melanie from our time in the Obama administration, and she worked on Capitol Hill for then-Senator Kerry, and then she went on to serve in the uh, administration in a series of roles and helping to drive both the Paris negotiation and as well as helping international countries uh, really try to meet those goals and, and move forward on clean energy. But then she moved into the private sector and has been working on a really amazing initiative to focus on a, a climate positive metric for investments uh, on the venture capital side. So she's joined Princeville Climate, which is part of Princeville's Capital Fund. And they're working on an amazing efforts to find those companies that are going to be helping to address climate change uh, in the future. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us at Experts Only. Great. Thanks so much for having me. You've got such an amazing and, and diverse uh, background. I want to talk for a second about, um, you know, first of all, before we get into your work in policy and on the Hill and in the State Department, uh, and it, at uh, NRDC, how did you get interested in energy and climate issues to begin with? So interestingly, I started off sort of early days as a long distance runner. And when I was in college, I really enjoyed running. And I went to Brown University, where it was a bit pick your own adventure type of schooling and curriculum. And as I got to my sophomore year and had to declare a concentration at Brown, I thought, what do I like? I like being outside, I like environmental issues. I like international issues. And so I ended up uh, thinking, oh, I'll concentrate on sort of environmental aspects. And there, I really started to learn much more about what's happening on climate change, on new energy policies, new energy developments that were happening. And I really started getting really excited about that, coupled with the idea of international flavor to uh, to the work that I'd be doing. And so after college, I ended up uh, going straight to law school. And there again, I felt like my really my interest was, was being outside, being with the, being involved in environmental issues. And climate change just increasingly was the top issue that was affecting everything around me when it came to whether it was water issues or energy, how we use our energy, how we were driving our vehicles. And so that's kind of what drove me into the, the climate and energy thematic. So right out of law school, then, did you go to Natural Resources Defense Council or was there sort of a step in between there? 
I, I know I read a law school. I ended up uh, basically getting my dream job, which was to go work for NRDC. I had summered there uh, a summer prior to graduating. I did a dual degree. So I got a joint master's and law degree. And um, I had two opportunities when I graduated law school and my master's. One was to go do a presidential management fellows program, the PMF program, which was kind of a, a fast track route into a government role. Right. And then the other route was um, I had this offer with NRDC. And I was really sort of at a sort of crux of do I go towards my master's degree, which was on international studies and peace and conflict work, or do I go towards my law degree, which is really focused on environmental issues? And I decided uh, for a variety of reasons to go down the NRDC route because at the time that really was my dream job. The organization was doing so much great work. It was 2005. They were fighting a very conservative uh, administration and winning uh, a lot of cases. And, and law was just a really exciting time to be there for both law and policy. And were you based in D.C. then? In I was. Yep, I was the international program in the D.C. office. And then what drew you to Capitol Hill and working for Senator Kerry and the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee? So when I uh, took that job at NRDC, I knew that I had this other opportunity to go into government. I knew I really wanted to go into government. My grandfather uh, worked for the Japanese government as an ambassador, and I used to travel around the world to see him in his various posts. And I really thought government service was a really exciting job and exciting role to play. I mean, he did it for the Japanese government, but I really just loved the service he was doing. And 2005, it wasn't for me the time to go into government, but I chose NRDC because I looked around at the people I would be working with, and many of them had served in the Clinton administration. And they had said, look, NRDC has sometimes a revolving door for folks that go in out of go- into government or out of government, and you might have the opportunity if the election goes the right way that in 2008 or 2009, you could go back and you could go into government. And so when I left NRDC, uh, or when 2008 election happened, and it was, you know, President Obama got elected, Democrats took over the House and Senate, that really seemed like the right time for me to think about a position in government uh, and really think more about a legal type of position in government. So that's when I started looking at the Senate. And John Kerry had taken over as chairman of Foreign Relations Committee and was really keen to staff the Foreign Relations Committee uh, with his climate expertise and right. to really kind of launch a climate bill from that position as chairman of Foreign Relations Committee. And he looked around and tried to staff that with you know, domestic experts, international policy experts. And I was fortunate enough to be tapped to join his team as he was staffing up uh, to work on the international climate pieces. In there? So what, what, was the, what was the draw from them to your experience? And, and for, by the way, for those that don't know and aren't aware for our listeners, Sen- uh, Senator Kerry then became Secretary of State Kerry. Uh, had, had, has been very passionate on climate for decades and led that work uh, both in, across the Senate and then obviously later on uh, when he served uh, as Secretary of State. So uh, it was interesting. I had never done before a uh, position on Capitol Hill. I did a lot of work focusing on advocacy on safe drinking water and climate and clean energy, but had yet to, I wasn't an intern. A lot of people that end up on Capitol Hill might have interned there at some point or had, you know, an early start there and then came back around. And so for me, it was really, um, I had a, a couple colleagues that knew that, you know, then Chairman Kerry was looking for somebody with climate expertise. And I had a couple colleagues that said, look, you know, you should really throw your name into the ring for this position because it'd be great. I mean, John Kerry is a champion, the leader on climate, and he really wants to use that platform to launch a really comprehensive uh, effort to pass legislation on it. And so that's how I, I found my way in. It was a really fast 
interview process and, uh, you know, kind of almost caught me off guard how quickly it moved, given how slowly other types of, you know, um, employment works. But um, it was great. It was uh, an incredible experience. In that role, were you crossing into the efforts to push the uh, climate bill that he was had co-authored with um, Senator McCain? I did. It was, he ended up, that bill was basically sort of headquartered out of the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, and, you know, the committee really quarterbacked, the staff on the committee really quarterbacked that cap and trade bill. And it was about two years of effort to, you know, put together this comprehensive package after we watched it pass the Wax and Markey bill, pass out of the House, and then take the reins and bring it over to the Senate and really stitch together a pretty unique ecosystem of players. I know, John, you were, you were part of that fight especially in your role then. And it was one of those things where you brought together the veterans community, the military voices, national security. I think that was a really the, the first time a really concerted effort was taken to address the national security implications of climate change that you continue to see reverberate through the advocacy efforts, uh, even today, about the importance of this plays to the national security element in, in, our, in our community. But uh, that was really, it was a great effort um, and one that, you know, politics ultimately won the day in terms of us not being able to pass a full comprehensive package. But, you know, excited to hear the conversation today about pricing carbon and just, you know, the growing momentum behind an effort to actually see a price on carbon pass, uh, both at the state level, but also federally. Yeah, so much was learned through that fight that I think is now we're back in a new climate moment where, you know, I think post, post that the failure of that legislation to move forward was a variety of efforts. You know, I think after Waxman Markey passed, there wasn't a, a defense of the members that voted for it. You know, the environmental groups were still getting their game together. Uh, and then you really couldn't talk about climate change. At that time, I was in the Obama administration. You couldn't, like in the Pentagon, you couldn't use the word, the words climate change. And then momentum began to rebuild again. I think today we're in an entirely new moment. But then, you know, you went from being on the Hill to working for uh, then Secretary of State uh, John Kerry, you served as a deputy assistant uh, secretary for energy transformation at the State Department. A long title for people that don't know what that means. What was your role at state? And I know you worked with other governments helping to drive clean energy commitments. Sort of, what, is, what does that title do on an international stage? Yes, yeah, so I had two roles. I first started off as a climate policy advisor to him in the policy planning shop. And then that was really focused on the Paris Climate Agreement helping, you know, pull together the stakeholders and the ecosystem for the Secretary of State to really drive forward a, a comprehensive Paris Climate Agreement, working with um, all the key players at the State Department uh, to get that delivered. And then after we achieved the Paris Climate Agreement, it was really about how do you help countries implement their targets? You know, part of Paris was proving that this diplomatic, this global diplomatic order... You, yeah. you definitely passed over a pretty major accomplishment, which is pass, uh, getting the, the climate commitment in Paris. What was that moment like for you as a person, having worked so hard? Oh, on it? it was um, just being on the floor of the Le Bourget, which was this airport. It, it was actually an airport hangar in Paris, outside of Paris, rather. It was just incredible. I mean, it came down to, you know, being a lawyer by training. It really came down to, you know, basically particular words. Um, and placement particular words and trying to get agreement around that. And then finally being be able to overcome that and see us actually, you know, agree to this uh, comprehensive package was just, a, you know, a monumental experience. It was one where, you know, everybody on the floor was cheering and, you know, the global community was watching. You always heard that they were, but you actually could feel that they were 
there in that moment and really excited to see the world really kind of change kind of a trajectory of where we're going. You know, this is the developed world and developing world all coming together on a on a kind of global commitment in a unified voice. And so I think we were thrilled. I mean, the Secretary of State was on the ground for nearly two weeks throughout that negotiation. And, um, you know, it was just a really a huge effort played over, you know, years of effort to get us to that moment and um, to finally see it happen and to really change the paradigm of how we were approaching climate change and how the global response to it was changing was was great. And I'm pleased to say that it really still to this day, I still see that as this watershed moment where that really marks a change in behavior across our entire ecosystem, from businesses to schools to, you know, to the average citizen. 2015 Paris was really a moment that did, we said it was going to set sort of a, mar- a signal to the marketplace. And now, you know, many years later, I, I really do believe and see that it did send a signal to the marketplace. The marketplace has changed direction because of that agreement. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that in a second, but just for very few people will have the opportunity, which you had is to be in the room for those level of, of dialogue and negotiation. So how much, how much of that was happening with the principals, the secretary sitting down with the foreign ministers and how much was happening sort of at the staff levels? You got down to the nitty gritty of the final uh, hours of getting it done. It was, in a sense, it was some amazing pictures I've seen sort of posted around where it was actually both, right? You had both the secretary on the phone with foreign ministers, because many of the foreign ministers were actually not in Paris. They were back home uh, in their own capitals. And so he would be calling them to talk about different provisions that need to be moved or things that he, you know, he wanted to talk to them about and making sure that we could get agreement to move forward different pieces of the package. And then you also had those that were in Paris at the time and sitting down with them um, at all levels to really work out the nitty-gritty details. I mean, at one point, the Secretary of State went into a negotiation at 2 a.m. where you know, there was another foreign minister in that room, but he was there and he took over the chair and, and, and this, you know, talked through some issues um, in that conversation. So it really... It was just interesting to see a foreign minister, frankly, um, operating at all levels uh, to really get a deal done at the end of the day. And at the same time, we had, you know, the White House team was there. You had the State Department team there. You had Special Envoy Todd Stern um, leading with with his counterparts as well. And so it was really um, just all the different pieces that had to all come together in that moment is also what made the entire negotiation process so unique because there's just so many streams of effort that had to be orchestrated and coordinated and frankly, you know, uh, in unison uh, to actually ultimately achieve what we did. So you said earlier, you know, coming out of that moment, it really did set the table for, I think, what we're seeing today, even in the face of an administration that has pulled back from the, the commitment. You know, there's literally now thousands of, of cities and states, uh, pr- public sector and private sector organizations who've signed the We're Still in commitment to, to Paris, uh, basically pledging to continue to drive towards those goals. Uh, and that would not exist if we weren't able to get to the steps that you guys were able to achieve. It's a pretty amazing accomplishment. I think it's also true, though, that in the face of this administration's pullback or perceived pullback from Paris, you're also seeing these companies and others have to step up with a louder voice. Right. You probably wouldn't be forced. You wouldn't have seen if we had an administration that was as forward leaning on the climate issue, right? Because the federal policy would be what was gathering all the headlines and the attention. And it would almost take some of the pressure off of these companies to have to force their voice and step up into the gap that was being created. And so We're Still In uh, really was 
you know, this call to action in the face of a pullback, a federal pullback. But I'd be interested to see, you know, would that still exist as loud as it is and as widespread and proactive if you didn't have this perceived, you know, and actual federal pullback from the, the Paris conversation? And so I think there's, you know, it's not at all, by no means am I saying it's a good thing that the administration sure. takes this position, but it is really great to see uh, this gap being filled with, frankly, an even louder voice and one that commands almost both more emissions under their belt as well as more capital. So you're transitioning now, leaving private or leaving public sector and moving to the private to the private sector. You really, you know, I've talked about this uh, one-on-one, but obviously I've never <laughs> recorded it. So I'd love you to tell the story, like why, what was your interest in finance? How did you make the move from doing the work you're doing at an international level and in the policy realm to decide to get into sort of uh, venture capital and private equity and finance? So um, when I was looking to, when I was leaving the government in, uh, after the election, one of the things that I kind of reflected back on what I'd done to date, we had, I'd done it basically about eight years at that point in the public sector and government, both on Capitol Hill and then in the State Department. And one thing that I realized, particularly my last few years at state when I was in the Energy Bureau, helping countries and working with countries to implement their Paris targets or to help the countries get on the glide path with the right policies and the regulatory frameworks to drive the kind of change needed in their economies to hit those initial Paris climate targets. What I realized was much public sector dollars we were bringing to the table and the Obama administration brought forward, you know, a significant amount of public sector resources to tackle this challenge. It still paled in comparison to the trillions that were operating in the other direction. Right. And, you know, more and more studies were coming out that the gap between public sector, you know, public resources to finance the transition and the private sector resources needed, the gap was continuing to grow. And I thought, you know, we have an administration that was most likely not going to be putting in more money, if let alone holding it steady from the public coffers into climate solutions. But now is really the moment to go after that larger pie of private sector and private capital and bring that to bear into the climate solution space. And a lot had been shifting and changing by 2016, 2017 to make it so that by that point, there really was an opportunity for the private capital markets to see you know, significant returns, healthy investments um, by going into climate solutions. And I thought this was a real opportunity for me to now make that pivot and apply what I've learned and what I know about regulatory and policy change and bring that into you know, really successful investing from the private capital markets. So you transitioned and now you're at Principal Climate, which is a part of the Principal Capital uh, Fund. You've helped launch the, the climate initiative there. I want to talk more about the climate initiative for sure, but can you give us some history on Princeville uh, Capital and the work that they've done uh, historically in the venture space? Of course. Um, so Princeville Capital is an investment firm that backs rapidly growing technology-focused and tech companies around the world. It has offices in Hong Kong, San Francisco, there's a small footprint in Amsterdam, and I'm here in Washington, D.C., and the firm is founded by partners that have a long-standing pedigree as technology investors, over 25-plus years as tech technology investors, and particularly around the world and in, in companies growing quickly around the world. So I was really excited to see a firm that's out there with a technology experience, technology backing of growing these companies to really successful exits and you know being innovative and being disruptive as well 
across all different types of technology platforms. And they already had a fund under management called Pencil Global, and they were going through this process of thinking through their next fund strategy. And climate change, as many of us have come to the realization, is such an important, critical global threat and a challenge that they really felt that they could have uh, a positive impact on addressing using their expertise and their knowledge. They've got capital markets expertise, tech expertise, and they really needed that last thread, which was the climate expertise to understand where to move and and how to really see um, successful investments through. So as they started launching the Principal Climate Fund, they brought me in uh, to really help think through the policy and regulatory strategy, understanding which markets are growing quickly, and what we call where is there a policy pull for climate solutions, making sure we're not making the mistakes of funds that were went before us and may have right. felt a, a policy push in the wrong direction. They're really looking through that. And so, you know, we excitedly have launched the Principal Climate Technology Fund, and uh, we're looking at really exciting climate-positive technologies that are having a real impact in addressing uh, climate adaptation, but also mitigation. So let's talk about the climate-positive strategy. It's it's uh, really interesting, and you have, you know, I've talked about it before, but it's one of the few... Uh, Wait, metrics out there to me- actually measure the impact of these investments you want to make. You know, how did you come up with a climate positive strategy? And can you talk a little bit about how you're using it in deciding, you know, where to deploy capital? Yeah, so we took a pretty deep dive into how climate or environmental issues are being measured across the private uh, private companies space. Um, we looked at the public markets as well for understanding how they look at it, but also really understanding what's being done in, in the private markets. And so from that perspective, we landed on four guiding principles to our impact methodology. The first was we wanted to look at both mitigation and adaptation. So not just gigatons of greenhouse gases reduced, but looking at really a much more comprehensive view when it comes to climate solutions, both mitigation and adaptation. The second key guiding principle was we want to use what we call a positive screen on our investment strategy, not just a negative screen. And so, you know, you might have seen in, you know, out there things that say we won't invest in fossil companies or we won't invest in right. tobacco or firearms. Um, and that's, that's really important to have a negative screen, but we thought we could be better, right? We could actually also apply a positive screen where we're actually proactively bringing certain things into our portfolio. Um, the third kind of guiding principle was to make sure we had metrics that were material to climate change, not just broadly the so-called environmental social governance or ESG investing, but really take a look at that universe of metrics and hone in on what are the ones specific to the climate impact. It's emissions, it's efficiency, in some cases it's biodiversity because of the importance of land use. And the last key piece was really to integrate financial metrics of the company into our methodology. So it's great if, com- if companies are performing well, but, you know, unfortunately, they need to have a grant to sustain their profitability right. year on year. So that would not work for us, right? We really want to look at the company's performance to make sure it was financially sound, that it was growing quickly, that it was a really good long-term investment for us, uh, and not just one that might look like it has a high impact, but needs a grant every year, uh, versus those that might look like a smaller impact would actually be a really sustainable company and be growing quite rapidly, that its impact will actually you know, kind of grow exponentially over time. That to us is a much more exciting opportunity for us than the one that has a perceived high impact right now, but needs you know a financial injection of grants every year. It's interesting. It's similar to how we approach things at Clean Capital. I mean, we look at uh, the market today and look for real assets with, with significant returns or real returns 
and you know the the positive impact that we're investing in solar and climate for us is obviously critical to our mission and critical to what we're doing but when we talk to our investors it's really about the returns right they want to see that these things are able to stand on their own uh, and, and exactly and that's why we you know almost don't even call ourselves an impact fund because we're returns focused first right it's first yep. and foremost we are a traditional tech fund returns oriented but there's also this impact piece, which we want to make sure we report on. And that's why we created the climate positive investment strategy. It's so that we can actually have something we can report on, that we actually have terms and you know, sort of guidelines around how we report our impact to our investors on an annual basis. So they know that you know, this is the emissions that we're reducing or the efficiency we're in creating or the water that we're saving, um, but all things that relate to the climate change ecosystem. We want to make sure we added that to the financial performance as well. Um, so that you know the investors who are interested in climate change uh, really get that that feedback. So if I have a company, if I have a, if I'm starting a company that is looking for for venture capital backing, for instance, uh, and I think I I think I can meet those metrics, how do I go about approaching to be a partner with you all? So we have a scorecard that we deploy really early on, and when we look at a company, our climate positive scorecard, and we run the company through it. You know, it's got some basic questions of understanding, you know, what kind of impact this company may or may not have when it comes to the material climate metrics that we've we've created in our scorecard. We run you through that, and assuming you come above our threshold of climate positive impact, you're deemed as you know a potential opportunity for our climate fund. And then we run you through the financial metrics to make sure your, you know, the performance of your company fits our growth stage investing strategy. Um, and then we we go into further discussions. And you know, we get to the, say we get to the very end of that process, and we actually invest in you, and you become a portfolio company. Then um, on an annual basis, we'll have these conversations about the kind of metrics we'll be tracking and reporting on to our investors, and work with you on those metrics to make sure that we uh, we know how you're tracking it and and help and help you through that process. So if you're looking online, you can find uh, these at, at, at principal-capital.com uh, and right under the principal capital or principal climate uh, efforts. It's really well laid out. And if, if someone wants to reach out, can they reach out with their company through your website? How do they find you guys? Yep, you can find us on our website, which is you know principal-capital.com. And you can go to our principal climate fund. And there's a, a site there. You can just reach out and send us a note. We've got an inquiries inbox. Um, and we love to hear from companies in particular that are, you know, your software business model type of companies that are later stage. We invest around 20 to $50 million because uh, we're typical growth stage investors. But if you're, you know, if you do data analytics or, you know, in, include machine learning or AI into your climate positive strategy in your platform, we'd love to, you know, talk with you and hear from you because, you know, that's the kind of companies we're excited about. And given our capital markets expertise, you know, we really want to see those companies that are thinking about an exit in three to five years or have global ambitions because of our footprint globally. Um, these are all ways where we can really provide value add uh, to those types of companies that are out there. So most funds don't like to talk about uh, their investors. So I'm not going to quiz you on this, but there's a very famous investor you guys uh, brought on. It was it was in the media, so I can raise it. But Leonardo DiCaprio, let's talk about him for a second. He uh, recently in publicly supported your fund and and obviously gained a great deal of, uh, of, of press. And I'm not going to quote him here for a second. Addressing climate change requires an urgent, broad-based shift in our energy use. Technology and private sector investments will play a critical role in securing a healthier future for our planet. The vision of the, pr- the principal capital team and the goals of the fund are part of this effort, and I look forward to working closely with them. Why 
did he choose you guys over so much that's out there today? Obviously, for folks that know, by the way, Leo is actively, incredibly active in the climate space and doing amazing leadership stuff. But the fact that he's going to work uh, with Melanie and her fund is very exciting. I think that, um, and we'll speak um, for him by any means, but one of the things that we're seeing generally in this space is that more and more people are realizing you can do both, right? You can have a philanthropy and a foundation element that's geared towards climate solutions, but you also need to bring the private capital markets into the space as well. And so to join up with a fund like ours that's doing really exciting growth age tech investing directly into companies is one that's really filling an important gap that's out there in uh, addressing climate change, that it, you just you need both. You need both a philanthropic side as well as one that's geared towards returns and impact. And so having him join us has been, you know, we're incredibly excited to have him on board. It's a, it's really important to have, you know, he's the UN messenger for peace on climate change and just an incredible advocate for climate solutions. He worked really closely with John Kerry uh, when uh, both, actually, you know, both when he was in the Senate as well as um, as Secretary of State. And so as just someone I've admired and has been a longtime champion for climate uh, and also has done these phenomenal documentaries um, we were in Paris together when John Kerry uh, filmed that portion of his film for Before the Flood. And so just, you know, really seeing the passion in someone like DiCaprio and to have him on board has been uh, really important for a fund that's centered around really addressing climate change in a meaningful manner. Excellent. So uh, just one question left before we get to sort of our final question. But, you know, there's you're obviously looking at a variety of climate trends. Uh, I love the idea of the climate, uh, the policy poll. If there's a one specific area that really excites you of what you're looking out into, what what is it? I think what I'm really excited about is this thread that's happening. Like I would say two. One is both the what I call self-serving policies, which are not you know state or government targets that are supposed to fulfill a federal target or a federal mandate, but really states going after 100% clean energy or 100% renewable energy targets because it makes their own economic sense or it makes right. their own sort of statewide, you know, from a jobs perspective and even from a sort of a statewide um, growth perspective. I like the fact that we're seeing these sort of self-serving policies because you're seeing them in the United States in particular, where there isn't federal, there isn't a federal target or federal push for the type of climate action, but you're seeing states take that up on themselves. And the part that I'm really excited about is what you're seeing from the corporate side. I mean, you're really seeing corporate commitments and corporate policy driving a lot of the innovation and uh, disruption that's happening when it comes to climate and clean energy solutions, whether it's, you know, fleet-wide targets or looking at electrical electric vehicle fleet-wide standards, uh, which is then driving things like, you know, improved fleet telematics or charging infrastructure um, or better ways to uh, look at uh, procurement decisions. And that's for, for companies like yourself, you know, it's driving the build-out of more solar and renewables. So that, those two, I think, are the, the key areas I'm really excited about uh, that's really driving a lot of change and disruption. Fascinating. So I'm going to take you back to Brown University. Um, you were getting ready to graduate before you went to law school. Uh, you've had an incredible ride up to this point and continue to do amazing things. Uh, but I can't imagine you uh, forecasted that in your own, your own head when you were at Brown. What, if you could sit down with yourself and give one piece of advice, what would you say? I would say to myself at Brown that, you know, my career to date has kind of taken, it's really been a patchwork of experiences from, you know, public sector, private sector, nonprofit, and to really sort of embrace those different turns in my own career, uh, because, you know, building on all that experience is really what's making me even stronger 
a stronger investor and a stronger uh, person in the in the policymaking space as well. I think being able to move in and out of these different environments and have the different be able to speak in these different conversations, whether it's in the private sector or public sector, I think it's really important to have that range um, in one's career. Yeah. And you know, coming out of Brown, I think you know what was really exciting. I remember I was at Brown in my you know before I applied. And there was a panel of people speaking, and it was somebody who was, I think he was a, you know, an astrophysicist major who's now an English lit professor, you know, and I, I really thought that was an interesting sort of panel of people to have, which was what your major was didn't necessarily dictate what you ultimately did at the end of the day, but Brown gave you the tools to do that. And I didn't really believe it at the time. And right. I think now as my career has taken these various turns, I realize having these comparative skill sets and these different experiences in different sectors really makes you a stronger sort of, you know, professional athlete, if you will, uh, once you come out on the other side. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, you've definitely covered quite a bit in your career. And thank you so much, Melanie, for joining us. Thanks for the work you're doing. There's so much more uh, we can talk about, and I would love to have you back on for uh, another uh, conversation in the future. Great. Thanks so much, John. Really appreciate it. Of course. And for our listeners, uh, Look forward to seeing any of it that's going to be at Solar Power International. So please go to cleancapital.com. And if you want to meet with our team, we're going to be out there. And also, as we talked about in the introduction, uh, we're going to be at the Solar and Storage Finance USA Forum, uh, October 29th and 30th in New York City. Uh, and, and I'm chairing the, chairing the forum and helping to have some really interesting conversations. And I hope you can join. You can get that information on our website at cleancapital.com. Melanie, I really look forward to future conversations on uh, some exciting stuff that you're doing. Great. Thank you so much, John. Yeah. Thanks to Carly Batten, our, our producer. And uh, as always, look forward to continuing the conversation. You can find more episodes at cleancapital.com. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.